Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Father, we pray for your wisdom, your tact and grace as we deal with what you dealt with and the uh, Corinthian church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as you have called us to be saints to reflect the grace, the glory, the purity, the righteousness of God in a doomed culture. We pray, Lord, that we would shine as shining lights, uh, that we would really send forth the message of grace and gospel through our lives, and that this uh, message this morning would be appropriate And Lord, just what we need for today, we thank you for everyone who's here. We do pray again for those who are traveling today that you would mercifully guard their steps and their paths as they come back to us. And Lord, thank you that you are our teacher. This is your book, your word, and every place inspired equally. And so I pray that as we look at this passage of scripture that you would uh, just make our hearts tender to truths that might be helpful to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I encourage you to look at the text today as we read the first uh, nine verses. 1 Corinthians 7, now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, Paul speaking, again this is a corrective letter. It comes as a response to many issues in the church and as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I didn't really want to deal at length with the idea of of, uh, lawsuits between Brother, I, th- I said, Lord, I don't know that that's really our difficulty here, but God put it in the path for us, and all Scripture is profitable. Now we come to chapter 7, and Paul speaks directly to the issue of singleness. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise unto the wife, also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency." But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as myself. Paul, in in this context, was a single man. But every man have his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, or single as I am. But if they cannot contain... Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Well, let's go back to verse 1, shall we? And dig in this morning. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, we probably need some context here for this particular verse uh, this morning. What does it mean? Was Paul of the school of thought that marriage is bad, hugging is out, Handshakes between members of the opposite opposite sex is too risque and uh, should be prohibited. Is that what he means by it's good for a man not to touch a woman? As you know, I'm a graduate of Pensacola Christian College. Maybe Paul was too. He went went to a college that's very conservative. We can think of a few. 
I don't think that's the issue. In fact, when I was, even before I went to Pensacola, I went to a college way up in Canada, very, even more conservative than that. And they had the guys in chapel on one side and the girls on the other. They were the opinion, not only should you not touch one another, you shouldn't even look at one another. Get distracted, perhaps, at least during chapel. In fact, I was curious when I went to that college. I only lasted a year there. But I said, how is it then that a guy would even meet a girl and, and ask for a date? Is that permissible? And they said, well, what you do here, and I won't give you the name of the college. I know you're flocking to attend there or have your kids. <laughs> they said, what you need to do at our college is if you really like somebody uh, and you like to date them, you come see the dean first. I remember the name of the room you were supposed to go to is A107. You go and see the dean and you would tell him if you had a, a fondness for a, for a girl and he would say, well, what's her name? And this is actually what happened. He would pull the yearbook down off his shelf and he would page through it and he would look at you and then look at her. I mean, look at the per picture. And then he would kind of make the decision. Oh, I think that would be okay. Or no, that's not the one for you. That's exactly how it happened back in the day. My parents were very glad I went to a college like that. But uh, I don't think Paul is meaning that. In fact, I, I joke a little bit, but I'm kind of thankful for what COVID has done to um, help us with dating regulations. Aren't you? I am. As a dad, stay six feet apart at all times. <laughs> Wear masks and gloves. And do a 14-day quarantine if your stomach does a little flip-flop. Those are the new rules, dating at COVID Christian College. I like that handbook. What does Paul mean? We have a little bit of fun with this. What does Paul mean? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. We know Paul isn't prohibiting or bashing marriage or sex within marriage. The ESV here says it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. And we know the Lord ordained marriage. So we take this, this verse in the context in which biblically it sets. We know that the Lord ordained marriage. Where did he do that? In the garden, right? Genesis chapter 2. He ordains it and uh, sanctifies it not only as legitimate, but as sacred, holy and we know that Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 says this, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. So then we have to consider what does, uh, how do we take this in the sense of the, the larger landscape of Scripture. We know that marriage is wonderful, and the legitimate place for physical expression of love. In fact, marriage, uh, or even the sexual expression of love within marriage, is, is wonderful, proper, pleasurable, procreative, and it builds the partnership of marriage. So why does Paul say this? Chapter 7 and verse 1. Why does he say it's not good if God says it is good, honorable, healthy, within the confines of marriage? Well, to understand again chapter 7, we must remember and know what Paul has been discussing in the chapter that precedes it, chapter 6, the dangers of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. And he is clear uh, when he ends the chapter that we are uh, to be careful 
And he says, as he ends up chapter 6, he says, What? Don't you know that your body is the temple, the sanctuary of the Holy Ghost, which is in you as believers, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. This is a verse most of you have memorized. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You cannot detach your body in terms of its influence in the spirit. Both are uh, complicit. The question this morning is this. Is it okay to, to be married at all? If there's this kind of stigma, they were living in a culture, I might remind you, at Corinth, Corinth was a lot like New Orleans or Reno or Las Vegas or some of the most perverse cities that you could think of in the world today. Corinth was known. The culture there was immoral. And so Paul is addressing some of the excesses and some of the misunderstandings about, uh, about marriage and singleness. And it's a corrective epistle. The book is response. And, and the verse, first verse in chapter 7 then reminds us, of, reminds us of what's going on. Now concerning, that's how chapter 7 begins, the things whereof ye wrote me. We can only guess on these things by what Paul is saying in response. It's five years since Paul's been there. And a group has come to him with all kinds of concerns about all kinds of things. Marriage among those and singleness and morality among those things that was one of the issues in the church. And so Paul is addressing these by response. And I want to just remind you the culture was not only filthy, corrupt, perverse, but uh, there were at least four forms of marriage uh, in those days. Let me list its identity with immorality and fornication. That's really, they, they made a, wor- a verb out of the word Corinth, which equated with fornication. And so in this licentious community, God had raised a church up. And there were four forms of marriage. I just want to explain this a little bit to you because I think context matters when we look at this passage before us. There were tent companions, or tent companionship. Um, Really, this was more among the slaves. Uh, This type of marriage was more of a lived-together arrangement that uh, could be broken up at any time by the master. He wanted to sell a slave, and there was cohabitation among the slaves. It was very common, and no doubt some of these were coming to Christ and coming to the church. And this relationship, this tent companionship, was very non-binding, informal. Children born to these slaves, were considered really property of the master. And they could be sold like cattle or sheep. And those those informal, temporary marriages, if you can call it that, uh, the intent companions, could be broken up at the whim and the will of the master of the slaves. Secondly, there were what was known as common law. You've heard of this, a cohabitation relationship, a common law marriage. You were just deemed married, married after a certain amount of time that you were spent together with another. And so that is really called common law. Then thirdly, there was the type of marriage called arranged marriages. Any of you got married that way? Raise your hand. Your parents arranged it. That's what I thought. This is still very common in the East and Far East. In fact, we were discussing with a missionary to India. They were both natives. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we were discussing their ministry in India, and, and she just 
piped up and said, our marriage was arranged. <laughs> and I don't know if she was for that or against that, but she said, she just as a matter of, our, we, our parents arranged our marriage. So that still goes on. A father would simply sell his daughter to a prospective husband, and the daughter had little to no say in the matter. Again, still practiced custom in many places. And then fourthly, and this is more what we practice today, a traditional marriage with witnesses, and there was formal vows that were exchanged in the presence of the witnesses, and the families were present. This was mainly a type of marriage, although it's persevered, thankfully, of the four styles, persevered unto our day. It was mainly practiced among the nobility, the people with a little more money <clears throat> and status, or two families <clears throat> would witness vows exchanged. The hearing, uh, of course, of the vows in the presence of public presence, there would be an official there, the, the, the gal would wear a veil, the bride, and there was a giving of the ring, and this is kind of what has pers uh, persevered or preserved in our day and time. Now, even though there was these four forms of marriage, the culture of marriage in Corinth, it is, as we study the historians, it was not unusual for even a married um, couple, even a traditionally married couple, to, to divorce not once or twice, but up to 20, 15 to 20 times in their lifetime. So you can tell there wasn't a solid um, sense of commitment to marriage. And so you had people <clears throat> coming to the church, and they were from all these different forms of marriage. And uh, not only that, they were living in a culture where the identity of sexual expression was so open and perverse. And, and, uh, and I say that because in the city of Corinth, they had a reputation worldwide for this sexual license. And a thousand prostitutes, historians tell us, from the four temples to Artemis would flood the streets any time during the day, both male and female prostitutes uh, in the form of ritual religion practiced their prostitution. And so here was the church in the middle of this. And that's why Paul is writing to the church to correct some misunderstanding about God's gift of sexuality. They were living, and some of them, as we know from chapter 6, um, were practicing before they got saved all kinds of things. Look at chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10. You see that list right there, the catalog of the perverted <clears throat> folks that were getting saved by the grace of God. And quite a list it is. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves. The sex trade in this city was well known. And so here they are. They're coming to Christ. And they have questions about marital status. And it's no wonder new Christians are wondering, what should we do? And here was the response. Some Jews within the church, some Jews who really had a high view of marriage, uh, even from their culture in the past, the days of Moses, would say, no, it's a good thing. God says it's good. marriage is a good thing. It's not good for a man to be alone. And so marriage and a lot of kids is even better. It's the best and blessed way. And so they were coming up to singles in the church and saying, no, you have got to be married. It's God's way. Others coming out of the sex trade and understand the identity and the perversion of what they'd just been saved from, wanted really to spend their rest of their lives celibate. 
And there was confusion as to the best route to take. And so some Gentiles were saying, no, don't get married. Uh, stay single. Give yourself uh, to celibacy, to, to the life given to God. Join a, a monastery. They weren't saying that, but stay away from it all. The past was so perverted. So you have these conflict in the church at Corinth. Stay single. No, get married. Others were saying, if you are married to an unsaved person, then get out of that marriage. It's unholy. And then there were some that were saying, even if you are married, don't come together sexually because sex, even in marriage, has become so perverted in the culture that maybe we should just avoid it altogether. You say, pastors, all this stuff in the Bible? It is right here in chapter 7. This is the culture to which Paul responds. And there, was, there were some in that day that had such a skewed view of God's gift, the act of marriage, that they were really giving it a bad reputation. Just avoid it altogether, almost as if they were arguing that if sex is the devil's tool, throw out the whole toolbox. Sex and Satan were synonymous in the culture. I love the true story that's told by Dennis Rainey of Family Life Today. And, and by the way, parents, let me just say something. I know this is a delicate topic, but do you know you step outside those front doors of our church and the devil is, that's all he can talk about. And inside the church, there is this deafening silence. And our children sometimes don't know God's purpose in the gift of sexuality. Well, Dennis Rainey and his wife knew it was time to talk to their children about the biology and the, the purpose of sex and marriage. And you have to have that talk earlier rather than later in our culture. You do. There is a, an amazing disparity between what's happening out there and what's happening in the church. We are silent about this great gift of God and its proper place and use. Well, after having the talk with uh, his boy about how babies were made biologically and God's purpose, there was this awkward silence. Have you parents been there? I won't ask you to raise your hand. And his juvenile son said, Ooh, Dad, that's gross! Then he looked at his mom and dad and said, after counting up his siblings, he looked at his mom and dad and said, and I guess that means you've done this thing three times. It's okay to chuckle in church. Have you noticed what God designs for good? The devil defiles. Have you noticed what God institutes? The devil prostitutes. And have you noticed what God created in the garden and designed for good, male and female? The devil is taking that gift that belongs in marriage and he, all that you can do outside the doors of this church is hear the world celebrating that pollution of that gift from God and the church is suffocating. And what God designs, the devil defiles. Parents, it's no wonder our kids because of our silence, go to the world 
for their education because we simply have abjured it by our negligence, our silence. Our kids think it's shameful. And there were some in the church at Corinth that did too. God calls it honorable within marriage. God designed it. The devil defiles it. Let's not let the perverts define and explain the gift of God properly placed in marriage. After creating man and woman, God did not say, wow, that was a mistake. (laughs) No, he didn't. He said, it's good. It's very good. Now then, I think with that context in mind, we're ready to look again at verse 1. Concerning the things whereof ye wrote to me, he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Put another way, we could do it, we could say it this way. Enlarge the context a bit. Because you wrote to me about some within the church who are single and content in that state, but are being pressured to marry because it's considered by some to be a more blessed condition, Paul speaking, it's just wrong. Just as it is righteous to enjoy the privileges of physical relationship within marriage, it's just as good and just as right, if God so wills it, for a man to abstain from that privilege and be single or celibate. That's the longer version of verse 1. It's okay to be single if that's your gift and you're content in that. That's what chapter 7, verse 1 means. It's okay. It's good. That little phrase, it's good for a man not to touch him. It's good for a man to remain single or celibate. It's not wrong to those that were saying, you've got to be married. Paul is addressing that misunderstanding. So singleness is good if you are content in that state. Look at verse 7. For I would that all men were even as myself, single. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. In verse 8 again, he says, it's good, really an echo of verse 1. It's good for a man to be single. It's okay. (laughs) Don't force them into a marriage relationship. It's not weird. If God has given you that gift, if you cannot contain, let them marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Chapter um, 7 and verse Six is often misunderstood. We are to understand, first of all, that singleness is good, if you're content in that state. Secondly, singleness has many advantages. We need to kind of just do a skip of verses 2 through 5 and come back to those. But I want to go to verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 and get to another point in here, and that's this. Singleness has many advantages, but they don't advance your spiritual status before God. They don't make, uh, if you're single, uh, as Paul was in this context, it doesn't make you more spiritual than to be married. And Paul in verse 6 is saying, but I speak this by permission. I think these, this verse is a tie into 7, 8, and 9. I speak... This by permission and not by... What is, what is he saying? Paul, he's writing by inspiration. He's got the quill in his hand or he's got someone who's writing the words that the Holy Spirit is speaking to him. And he's, he isn't saying, well, the Spirit just left the room or the jail cell 
and I think I'm on my own here. <laughs> and so I'm speaking by God's permission, and it's not really God's best or commandment. I'm just kind of stepping out on thin ice. <laughs> no, all of the Bible is equally inspired. And Paul is not, he is not, not saying, this is kind of my opinion, and the Spirit is out there somewhere. Uh, no, this has as much force as anything. And so he's going to talk about singleness and the advantages of it. And he's simply saying here, and that word there, by permission, not of commandment, is simply this. The, the original there says this, I share, this, I share a like-mindedness or a common opinion with the Spirit as we consider the benefits of singleness. And, uh, and really, the joys and responsibilities of marriage. He is saying this, I'm not commanding either state. He's saying neither singleness nor marriage should be forced or commanded. That's the, that's the point of verse 6, as being spiritually advantageous or honorable above the other. But both designations are gifts of God and both bring special blessings. In other words, you are not closer to God if you're single or you're not closer to God if you choose to be married. In fact, it's interesting to me, if you read a little bit about uh, the story, the love story between uh, Jerusha Edwards and David Brainerd. David Brainerd was 29 and uh, ailing from tuberculosis. He was a missionary to the American Indians in New England. And he fell in love with Jerusha, who was the, the, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher, Great Awakening. And they had ten daughters, one boy. All of the daughters were six foot tall or taller. He called them his 60 feet of daughters. And Jerusha took care of this wonderful Indian, a missionary to the Indians, the Delaware Indians. He got sick. He was a sickly man. Historians tell us he was a great looking guy, but very sickly, and came to repair in the home of Jonathan Edwards. And uh, Pastor Edwards delegated his 17-year-old daughter to take care of him. It was a 10-month relationship before, um, de uh, before uh, David Brainerd died of tuberculosis. They fell madly in love. The story's a little frustrating because had he survived, I'm sure they would have been married. But you could tell, obviously, that David Brainerd did not have the gift of singleness from his journals. And she died shortly. As a, it's a, just a passionate love story where they never got married. They loved each other, and she was buried right next to him. But the truth is, not everybody has the gift of singleness. That's what Paul, uh, Paul is speaking. There are some wonderful advantages to singleness. By the way, I want you to know something. If you're a matchmaker, one is a whole number. It is. Bless your heart if you think you have the gift of matchmaking, but don't often force folks, and this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. Now, singleness is not a second-class status, and it's not helpful to be continually pushing the unmarried to wake up and find the right one. And then, on the other side of the coin, it is frustrating and morally dangerous for a person who does not have the gift of singleness to practice it long-term. In fact, that's why I say I'm not in favor of what's called long-term engagements. If God has shown you who you should marry and you get engaged, then get married. 
Don't place yourself in um, an arena of temptation. But understand Paul's thoughts here. He says, I'm speaking, I'm not forcing anybody into either. God has to, God has to direct you and lead you in that. But then he says something interesting in verses 7, 8, and 9. I would, all men were as myself, apparently, Paul, who had been married earlier. Paul, who had been married earlier, because to be a part of the Sanhedrin, which we believe he was in Jerusalem, marriage was a requirement. We don't know what happened to his wife. Perhaps she had died. Perhaps there was a divorce. Who, who knows? But maybe she left him because of his pursuit for God and his relationship. I don't know. But he is now in a single state, and he says to the unmarried widows, he puts himself in that category, verse 8. It's good for them if they can and abide even as I. But if they can't, well, then let them marry. Verses 32, same chapter, and 33, 34, he said, uh, here's the benefit, here's the advantage I would have you without carefulness or anxiety. He that is unmarried or single careth for the things that belong to the Lord, but how he may please the Lord. He that is married careth for the things that are of the world, that he may please, the, please his wife. There's a different dynamic being married and single in terms of your service to the Lord in church, the time you have, the attachments you have to family life. In fact, you look at verse 26, makes you wonder if the persecution for the believers was another advantage to being single. He says, verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. He doesn't elaborate, but the persecution ongoing for the church, true believers, made it even more beneficial, perhaps, to be single. But Paul stresses twice in verses 7 and 8, I wish all men, people, whereas I, I myself, Paul was single again, but he doesn't command or force that. Being single is good. Secondly, singleness does, not have, singleness does have some advantages, but it doesn't make you more spiritual. And quickly, a third point is this, celibacy or singleness, once you are married, or the abstaining from sexual activity within marriage is wrong for those that are. You say, Pastor, that's pretty pointed, isn't it? Well, let's look what he says in verse 2. Let's pick up the verses we skipped. Beginning verse 2, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, there's only one place where sexual intimacy is appropriate, legitimate, according to God, and that's within marriage. All God's people said... Amen. So let every man have his own wife and every woman her husband. And let the wife render, uh, speaking of the act of marriage, unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise the wife to the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his body, but the wife. Don't defraud one another except by consent as you give yourself to prayer fasting. And come together again that Satan doesn't tempt you. And so we have to understand that acting single or celibate once you are married, Paul says that is not good either. And uh, Paul speaks directly the proper place of sexual relationships in marriage. This may surprise us a bit, but it is the Bible. And it is true that in Corinth, the problems are not exclusive to that time. And, and by the way, our cities are often uh, equated to the very conditions in Corinth and the misunderstandings. There were some married folks that saw sexual relationships within marriage as detrimental and were beginning to act as single or celibate even though they were married. They were coming to Christ. Again, the background was rough. And so a city given uh, to sexual expression, license, 
and stimulation. It was all over the place, just like our culture. And so Paul is now talking to married folks and said this, be careful that you render to each due benevolence. And uh, those who had this improper understanding of its place were needed correction. And this is a corrective letter. And so Paul is saying, in, in rejecting the lifestyle of the past, uh, don't go so far as to damage the relationship you're in, the marriage relationship that you're in. There were some Christians, though married, had simply decided to stop this activity altogether, though married. I smile when I recall the pastor who dealt with a man who came counseling. He had a distraught husband. His wife wasn't with him. He said to his pastor, Pastor, help me out here. After three months of marriage, my wife now claims that she has the gift of singleness. You can't act single while married. And Paul sets the record straight. You can't return to celibacy after marriage. Marriage is the only proper place for sexual expression, verse 2. And then, please note, this is not, by the way, Paul is not saying that, uh, that marriage is, is only for that reason. Your sex drives, so go ahead and legitimate, le- make it legitimate and get married. Woe to the woman, or, or man for that, for that matter, who, who's married to someone who believes that that's what marriage is all about. We've already established that marriage is not just about that. Um, it is about a proper picture of God's stewardship and love for his bride. And that's the proper understanding, the partnership of marriage. And, uh, but marriage is the only proper place. Secondly, he's saying that both parties, verse 3, both parties in the marriage are to see the physical fulfilling of needs in marriage as obligatory and not optional. Obligatory and not optional. There are, of course, times, verse 5 tells us this, and seasons in marriage, um, that, that to abstain from physical expression in marriage is reasonable. Abstinence in the marriage would be re- advisable during times of separation, illness, grief, searching for the will of God by prayer, fasting. But these should be consensual and not common or continual in nature. For Paul says, you are to come together again so the devil does not tempt you for your lack of self-control. Can we be very practical in an independent fundamental Baptist church? This is what Paul calls due benevolence. And then there's this principle of the ownership of your body. Who owns you? End of chapter 6. The Lord owns you, first of all. But then you look at um, verse 4, chapter 7, the dual nature of your ownership. It's important to see that what? Not only does Christ own you, but your spouse holds the key or claim to authority over your body. And to disregard his or her desires is dishonor your vows and God's design for marriage. So what does that mean practically? And I'm about to wrap it up. Some of you saying, I hope you are. <laughs> what does that mean practically in the marriage? You're getting free counseling marriage if you're married. It means you're not to defraud one another, verse 5. That's in the emphatic sense. That's a command. To not practice. You are not to practice celibacy or singleness within marriage. So out with cold shoulders, cold beds, lingering bitternesses, Locked doors, headaches that never end. That's for the ladies. And for men, 
out with lingering solitude, unforgiveness, cold hearts, poutiness, the silent treatment where we essentially go to our side of the house and live on our own islands. Paul is saying, Christians, that is not to be. Wow. Pastor, we came to church for that. You know what? It's just Bible. And when you preach through a a text or preach through a book, you just deal with what God gives you to deal with. And I'm so glad that Paul's so practical. I am. I'm thankful for a book like this. And I'm thankful as we work our way through the issues at Corinth, we see ourselves reflected all over the place. Well, let's go back to this kind of this principle as we wrap up, shall we? It's found in chapter 6 and verse 19. What? You're not your own. Your body is not something that you have ownership over. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, your spirit, which are God. So whether you have been called to a state of singleness, you say, Pastor, how would I know that that is my gift from God? How do you know? You're content with that state. Or if you've been called to the state of marriage, and by the way, I highly, amen, highly recommend marriage. Most of us are in that status or working our way towards that status or state. Thank God for your marriage partner. And do your best to make it a place reflective of the grace of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your singleness. And don't let people, if you're content there and somebody's pushing you to be married, stand there. Say thank you, but no thanks. It's my gift from God. If you're married, make it the best marriage possible by reflecting these principles of serving one another in love. Father, what a joy it is to know that Paul, the Word of God, is not silent about even how we express ourselves, our love to one another. Thank you that you have given us marriage as a picture of your great love for the church, the stewardship of loving you with all of our hearts and expressing through our marriages or through our service as singles to the church of how great our love for you is. Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect the partnership that you designed in the garden. It's not good for a man to be alone. Thank you for the holiness, the the sacredness of our marriage vows. May we serve one another, coming together as a husband and wife, reflecting your grace and love for the church, working on the partnership that is so crucial, that is attractive to the world around us. And Lord, I pray that you will give us both singles and married folks here that just love you with all their heart, their soul, their strength, their minds. And Lord, I pray that we would not be polluted or convoluted by the world's thinking about the great gifts that you give to marriage. We commit our marriages to you, our lives to you, our children, our grandchildren, as they make decisions about whether to marry or not, that they would do that based solely on your leadership in their lives. 
And I thank you for the privilege, Lord, of reading a book like this and being directed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.